The following podcast may contain material that is not suitable for children. Welcome to the Fishers of Men podcast, brought to you by us at So Much Media. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. This podcast is about relationships and your walk with Jesus. It's about the true stories of Christian men and women's struggles with chastity, sex, marriage, and relationships in a post-Christian culture. So you might be wondering, where's Laura? And the answer is that she's off being an amazing and awesome producer on her latest project. She's getting so much done. I'm super proud of her, but she has no time for anything else. So I decided to take matters into my own hands and do an interview with one of my really close friends, Jessica Gerhardt. In addition to being an all-around wonderful person, Jessica is a Catholic singer-songwriter who incorporates her faith, which she articulates very well, into her art. Please enjoy. Okay. So, thank you so much for talking to me today. Gladly. (laughs) And so I wanted to invite Jess on to talk a little bit about her personal story, the way that she lives her faith in her daily life, and also how that shows up in her songwriting and her creativity. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Where should I begin? Um. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. So um, I'm a quote-unquote L.A. native. Um, I grew up in Santa Monica, and I grew up at St. Monica's Church, and uh, went off to college in Portland, Oregon at Reed College, small private liberal arts school. And um, after I graduated, one of the first jobs I got was in youth ministry. Um, So I work in youth ministry as well, but... um, yeah, I've been singing and songwriting since I was well, singing. I don't know how long, probably since I could make gargling noises <laughs> as a baby. And then songwriting since I was about eight and playing ukulele since I was about 14. And um, just got into performing and, and playing with other musicians. And so it's brought me to where I'm at now. That's awesome. Good times. It's yeah. <laughs> In terms of your faith, can you tell me a little bit about that journey? Yeah. So I was raised by my mom and dad growing up, and my mom was raised Catholic, but she had a lot of struggles in her own faith journey that I think kept her from practicing as fully or devoutly as one might. And so when she met my dad, um, he was not religious, uh, not Christian, um, kind of a spiritual seeker. And they got together and then they got pregnant and they got married. Mm -hmm. Um, like when I was like a year and a half old. So growing up, I was raised in a household where my faith was present, but it was also frequently challenged. Um, my mom wanted me to go to Sunday school, but my dad was like constantly kind of like, yeah, Jesus, whatever. Some Sundays, if I didn't have Sunday school, I would go to the beach with my dad because he was like, you could find God at the beach, which is absolutely true. But also mass is a great place to be with God too. (laughs) Um, So by the time I was going into ninth grade uh, for my confirmation, I um, was not interested. Uh, I was like, ugh, I have to do my confirmation. Like, it's going to be so boring, like all of my religious education classes. And my mom was like, it's the last thing you have to do, like, she was of that very much, like, it's your graduation from church kind of mentality. <laughs> I was like, fine. So I went, and I actually started to get something out of it, and started to go to the youth group, 
and really enjoyed that and um, started to really grow in my faith and the retreat was a turning point for me. And so by the time I was ready to be confirmed, because our program at the time was a one-year program, I um, wanted to be a teen lead myself and so got involved. Uh, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, it's just like a teen, like a peer leader who helps out with um, the programs. Like I wanted to be on the team of other teens that are a little older, helping the younger teens along. And um, so the summer before my sophomore year of high school, I went to this uh, sort of leadership institute called Christian Leadership Institute, CLI. And one of the things they had us do at the very end of the retreat, or institute, was um, to set a goal for one way to grow in our faith. And I think just through the experiences and the witness talks of people on the, 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 the retreat, I felt like I wanted to start going to Mass every Sunday. So when I got back home, uh, I was like, hey, Mom, I want to go to Mass on Sunday. She's like, what? <laughs> she dropped me off, and I went by myself. And um, I did that for a couple weeks, and then she started coming with me and bringing my little sister. So that was definitely kind of like the beginning of so, like, spiritual growth and healing in my family because I now my mom, she lives on the west side. I live in Glendale, and... She goes to Mass every Sunday on her own, and like she'll call me, and she'll be like, Jess, I just had this really powerful experience of God, and I'm like, that's really cool. Oh. So, yeah, God moves in cool ways. Then when I began my 10th grade year, my dad ended up coming out about having been unfaithful in uh, their, my mom and dad's marriage, like throughout the marriage. And um, it was really painful and really heartbreaking because I had been such a daddy's girl growing up and kind of like hero-worshipped him. Probably a little inordinately, but I mean, what daddy's girl doesn't. And so I felt at that time my mom was kind of falling apart and I felt like I kind of had to be the man of the house in a sense. I think a lot of sons who are in this position feel like that, but there was no man because yeah. I have no brothers. It was just me and my sister and my mom. And I felt like I had to be strong for my mom. But my youth group was a place where I had a ton of support. I had great friends who were there for me and who I could talk to and who provided this community where I felt at home. So I think that definitely affected me when I went off to college. Reed is a small private liberal arts school, and their unofficial slogan is communism, atheism, free love. <laughs> Not why I chose the school, but <laughs> it certainly characterizes uh, a good aspect of my experience there. When I got there, I looked for a Christian group on campus because I loved hanging out with my youth group and I knew that I wanted some sort of community like that. So I joined uh, the group there that was led by InterVarsity, which is like an evangelical Christian group. And our branch was called Oh For Christ's Sake. <laughs> um, so that was our Christian group. And it was pretty small my first two years. I was the token Catholic, led Bible study once. And when we closed with prayer, I was like, and we lift all these intercessions up to our Mother Mary, as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. You guys don't know this one? They're like, yeah, we don't pray that. <laughs> um, so learning some distinctions between Catholics and Protestants and their different theologies and practices. But what I will say that I would not be the Catholic I am today if it wasn't for non-denoms and evangelical Christians because Catholics notoriously aren't the best at studying the Bible. Yeah. And every Tuesday I would go to Bible study. And to be in a community with not only just Christians who know their Bible way better than I did, but highly intellectual, mm -hmm. um, very academic, 
uh, Christians, because that's what Reed attracts. It's not just a bunch of like hippie communist atheists. It's highly passionate, motivated, uh, quirky intellectuals, as they kind of market themselves, and people who love to learn for the sake of learning. So people are very driven to seek um, information and knowledge and, and um, glean that. Um, you can't just say, oh, I think this, without being able to back it up. And so there, it, you, you really get put into a place where you have to kind of confront some of your inconsistencies intellectually, as well as um, learn about why you believe what you believe. And um, being in that environment with Christians helped me to not just like read about Jesus, but to really feel like I was getting to know who he was and having developing a personal relationship with him through studying scripture. Like I would read the gospels and read the things that he said that were in quotes and be like, whoa, like Jesus said that. That's so cool. <laughs> and he's saying it to me now. And that just really kind of was continuing to like kind of guide and direct my, my uh, faith journey. And ultimately, I think coming to a place of really understanding that a lot of the ways I had been living that were sort of like, oh, I'd go to Bible study on Tuesdays or I'd go to the retreat sometimes. But like outside of that, there were some things that like I wouldn't have wanted to like have my Bible study leader see or whatever. Mm. I think I had to get to this place where I realized I either had to live with like Christ at the center of my life and everything needed to flow from this place, or I could just live however I wanted and not pretend to be a Christian. And that pretty much kind of set the tone for how I went off after college. There's a whole other bunch of things that influenced that. But um, yeah, <laughs> I'll start there. <laughs> if you have another question, a lot of my voice. <laughs> Throughout this, have you found that your songwriting has been influenced by your faith or has influenced it? Mm-hmm. Definitely. I'll talk about how music has been woven through that sort of conversion or ongoing process of my faith deepening. I was always writing songs. Like, I think one of my first songs that I wrote with my friend Elena when we were, like, kids was this song, Cold Spaghetti, about, like, magical spaghetti that doesn't heat up no matter what you do to it. I think it was basically the tune of my Sharona, like, cold spaghetti. So the the content matured as I did. <laughs> After my dad left, I definitely was influenced to write a lot of songs about like heartache and abandonment and pain and, and love. And music, you know, I started singing uh, in high school at this open mic called Downbeat 720, which is a great open mic for high school teens in uh, Santa Monica. I also tried to get involved with the choir, the youth choir at St. Monica's. And at the time, because I didn't go to their high school where most of the kids who are in that choir are, they are this very, you know, tight-knit group because they all go to Catholic school together. They all know each other. So when I tried to join the choir, I felt a little on the outs. And so I was, you know, just in the alto section during mass. And sometimes I would like hear like during mass, some of the teens who would be there were just like, oh my God, so-and-so was totally flat. Mm. And it's like, are you for real? Like, they're like holding up the Eucharist. Aww. Like, this is consecration time and you're like gossiping. But I just felt like, oh, I have to keep up with this in order to fit in. And so I remember distinctly a very traumatic moment where I found 
a song that I wanted to sing a solo for because I was like, I can sing and I want to prove to these other people that I'm, I can be a part of their group because I'm a good singer. So I took a solo on one of the verses of one of my favorite communion songs in this place. And I knew the song so well, one of my favorites, memorized the verse, knew it backwards and forwards. And when it was my turn to go up to the solo mic to sing it, my throat closed up. Oh. I couldn't read the page. And this has never happened to me. It had never happened to me before then and it has not happened to me since. I could not sing. And it was the ver- it was very weird. I just got so anxious and tense and choked up and I totally botched it. It was traumatic and I humiliating and I never went back to singing there. It was even hard to go to that mass for a while because I was just like, uh. uh but I am now thankful for the experience, ironically, because what I think was happening was that the Holy Spirit was like, oh, hell no. I gave you these gifts. You are not going to go into my house and glorify yourself with them. Mm. And Wow. Life lesson. Yeah, for real. Because when I got to college, um, one of the the people, the couple who led the group at the time, Michael and Sarah Lynn, um, amazing, amazing Christian couple, beautiful people, uh, very instrumental in my ongoing faith journey. They, she, Sarah Lynn was the musician and she would lead worship sometimes. And I had never really seen somebody so prayerfully lead worship. And she's kind of, she's kind of a mystic. So I gravitate towards her. She <laughs> likes to sing with trees. Like <laughs> she's, she's very prayerful. And she really, she would start inviting me to bring my ukulele and help lead worship with her. And so it was through that, like through these evenings where we'd sometimes just go sit under this bridge in the canyon on campus outside at night. And we would just like sing in the middle of the canyon, like worship songs to God and simple chord structures, simple lyrics, sometimes very repetitive, almost Tzai-ish. And we would just pray. And it was this beautiful way that I was learning how to use these gifts of music for prayer. And so as I began to kind of fall more in love with God um, that it was becoming like my faith and my relationship with God was becoming more and more integrally and like inextricably a part of who I was. So it was, it's become sort of difficult to create artistically without that. Like it's hard to separate who God is in me from the work that I, that I create anymore. Um, and it definitely, as I was going through different struggles, spiritual struggles, that became content for songs that I've written, things like that just really have become sort of woven into what I, what I songwrite about. That's awesome. And, and that's even your secular songs, right? Cause you mostly write and mm-hmm. you're, you're trying to produce music in a secular <coughs> space, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I'd say I, I, what really comes out of me isn't usually very explicitly like Christianese type music. I mean, I have one song <clears throat> that's probably pretty explicitly Catholic. It's the first lyric is when I hold my rosary. <laughs> so that, that about, you know, outs me. Um, but most of my other songs are kind of just, you know, about longing and love. And I'll throw the word pray in there.
Definitely just kind of uh, allowing my faith and my spirituality, my relationship with God to be present while still being subtle. Because I think there is so much that's universally true in our faith that can reach people who may have an allergy to Christianity, to Jesus, um, to these sort of concepts that they have of who Jesus and what God and what Christianity really are. and so I because try. of their experiences, absolutely, yeah. and they're very valid experiences right. because there's a lot of harm that's been done in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christianity, in the name of the Catholic Church. I think the recent yeah. movie Spotlight, <laughs> yeah, puts a spotlight on that. So <laughs> it's very warranted some yeah. of that criticism. Yeah, but I really love. I mean, I think 
the arts are a particular way to touch people on a really deep emotional level to really like reach their heart. We believe that beauty at its root comes from God, you know, mm-hmm. exactly. and, and like things that are beautiful have something of God in them. And so, mm-hmm. um, I think it's really awesome that you are using music as a vehicle to, to reach people, but in a more non-traditional way, not like a preachy way. Preachy ways didn't ever really reach me. Yeah. So I certainly don't think that they would effectively reach anyone else. And yeah, I totally resonate that beauty points to God. I went on this artist's retreat uh, earlier this year or last year uh, with my friend Kateri, and um, we were just discussing and exploring and praying with and making art related to this idea that beauty points to the transcendent. Like we're, we gravitate towards beauty because it, it like illuminates the transcendent. And yeah. so what, when we are attracted to art, uh, Josh Gerls, who's another Christian singer-songwriter, said, um, when you're when you see beauty in art, you want to know the artist, and so so it goes with like nature. We're like, oh, the sky, the stars, the trees, everything is so gorgeous. Like, where did it come from? And like, that's you know what the song of Genesis, you know, really is. Like, it, it's to be like, why would you worship the sun god and the tree god and the earth god when you could worship the one who made it all? You also studied women's studies, right? Uh, yes. I was a psychology major at Reed, and um, but my focus was in social psych, and I studied ambivalent sexism. Wow. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I'm really curious to hear your perspective on um, like feminism and living as a Christian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And and how and your choices, uh, you yes. know, and how you live out your faith. So, that's kind of another piece, like integral piece of my I'd say like faith journey, you know, having kind of had the experiences that I did in high school when my dad left. Um, it was me, my mom, and my sister, right? So, independent women need to be strong for ourselves because we didn't have a man to, you know, be the protector, the sturdy person to make sure everything, you know, we had to do it for ourselves. And, um, and I think there's also a lot of trust there. Like the one man who I looked to, to be that person fell from this like pedestal from, you know, who I'd hoped he had, he was. And, um, so I, I think in some senses I was a little disillusioned about this essentialized masculinity, right? I think that was definitely something that was influencing it. Um, when I was in high school, kind of fell in love with my first love, a good friend of mine. We started dating, and he was really there for me when I was going through a lot of the stuff with my dad. And I think in a lot of senses, he kind of filled this void that had been left when my dad was gone, um, or I projected a lot of that onto him anyway. And... Um, at the time growing up, because my mom didn't ever want to be like a hypocrite, she was never one to be like, oh, you should wait until marriage because clearly I was a year and a half old when they got married. You know, she, she was very open with me about her past experiences and flings and mistakes and habits and stuff. And I'm really grateful she raised me that way because I think I, because she was so real about some of the choices she made and what she learned from them. I always felt, A, like I could go to her and she wasn't going to judge me for anything I did. And B, like, 
I was like, well, I don't need to do that because I don't have anything to rebel against. Like, (laughs) she made that choice. I don't have to, like, make the same choices to learn the same lessons. So, but what she did encourage was for me to, like, hold out till till I was at least in love with somebody and they respected and loved me. So, you know, with my first boyfriend in, in, uh, in high school, you know, we were in love and I was, you know, precocious in certain senses and, and a horny teenager, frankly. And, uh, but also I I thought like, I'm in love with you. So that, that's all you need. And when I would reflect on the church's teaching about it, I was like, I mean, the church is kind of antiquated, right? Like, what do they know? Like, Mm -hmm. why would they, like, I can't believe this teaching is still around. And it was sort of not really as emphasized in the parish community that I grew up in. Like there are some Catholic communities where they have like purity, chastity retreats. That is not St. Monica's. Um, Not that they teach anything contrary to church teaching, but it's just not as, um, you don't like sign a virginity pledge or no, no, (laughs) (laughs) definitely not. So that was a part of our relationship when I was in high school. And then as I was starting to think about going off to college, kind of wanted to know like what his plans were. And, um, I think the romantic side of me deeply hoped that he would just like want to come away with me and like get a job in Portland and come up and like we could like be together. But um, what started to happen, he started having a kind of a deeper conversion experience happening to him earlier than what I was experiencing. Um, He started to want to practice chastity in our relationship. And I just thought he wasn't attracted to me. Like I thought Mm -hmm. I'm not pleasing him well enough. I'm not good enough. Like that was how Mm -hmm. I internalized it because I just couldn't understand why someone would want to go from having those experiences to not. Um, and I was so afraid of being abandoned because my dad had left. Like I was afraid of rejection afraid of that happening with him too. And eventually he decided that he wanted to be able to discern whether he had a vocation to the priesthood. And so that terrified me at the time. And I was like, you know what, we're gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break this off because I don't want to get left you know, yeah. I don't want to get hurt. So I put up this guard and definitely took that with me when I went up to college. And then, you know, was just kind of having my experiences at the college. I started to kind of uh, just try the things that people say, like, oh, you know, if you have these experiences, if you have those experiences, it'll help you get over your first love <laughs> and stuff like that. And I was like, sure, sure. Well, I ended up having like one one night stand and it was... I woke up the next morning and was like, this isn't who I am. This is not who I am. And I don't want to have a lot of notches by the time I'm married on my belt. Like, I don't want that number to be high. I want to be in love and I want it to be with the person that I'm going to only have these experiences with. And what I learned from that experience was that, like, the more people I do this with, the more it'll just be this thing that I do. And it'll be less about my relationship with that person. And it'll be more about the act of the thing that I'm doing. And I didn't want that to happen to sexuality for me. I didn't want it to become this thing that I do. Like the more people, even with like making out, like getting, just making out for a little while with somebody, even if you're not having sex, it's like, it's just like who's now, which person is in this position in front of me or in this role now. And I didn't want that to be what it became for me. Like I wanted it to be something where I could be just present and it was a, an expression of what I'm sharing with this one person. And I think that is one of the perks to abstaining from sex until marriage because the two who are married 
will not have these other memories and other things. They, they, they are only able to completely connect with one another in that, in like this really special way. And I mean, they're still healing, obviously. And I certainly would not be like, oh, well, I'm screwed now because I did whatever. Like, I, I think that there, that's just one of the benefits to it, it um, is having that purity of memory, I guess. And the other thing I noticed was like the things about it that were so much more sacred to me were like just like being held by someone, right? And these are things that happen to us with our parents when we're children. Mm. And I think that deeper intimacy is really what. I was looking for and what I was longing for. And so after that experience, I ended up finding out from this, this, my ex-boyfriend that he was going to enter seminary and I was pretty upset about it <laughs> and angry. Cause I think a part of me had thought, Oh, well, you're just going to like think about it for a little while, get over it. And then we'll get married 10 years from now. And I was afraid that because he was making this choice, that um, I was going to be left alone, that I was going to be abandoned like my dad had. And so I ended up just like not talking to him for a couple weeks. And he wrote me a letter. It was a long letter. And in it, he said, I'm always going to love you, but it's going to change forms. And I'm not leaving your life, but I need you to be my friend and to pray for me now more than ever. And it, I was just breaking down and weeping as I was reading this like nine page letter he wrote me um, because I had never been able to understand love like this before because I always thought like I, I for whatever reason thought I had to earn it I had to perform to get it and that if I wasn't in this particular role with a man um, pleasing being desired whatever that like I wouldn't be able to have his love mm -hmm. and so for him to say that he was always going to love me even though I, he was saying, I'm going to be in a celibate vocation, but I'm going to love you anyway, um, and it'll change forms, was powerful for me, and it completely blew open this new idea of love. And at that point, I became pretty convicted that I at least wanted to wait till I was in love again to <laughs> abstain from, uh, from sex. And so fast forward a little further, junior year, kind of started to fall for one of my guy friends uh, who I'd been friends with for about a year and a half and finally told him how I felt and he just did not feel the same way. I was super heartbroken about it and was like, you know what, my heart gets me into trouble so I'm <laughs> going to put it in a box Aww. and not going to use it because it's dumb and stupid <laughs> and I'm going to just not use it. Yeah, it'll be good. But uh, I didn't put my libido in a box. I put my heart in a box, but not my libido. So I ended up uh, kind of getting involved with this guy. And he, I could tell he was interested. And so I was like, try, I was being very aggressive with him to just try to make it about whatever. And we were dancing at this dance party one night. And I was trying to make out with him. And he like, I could tell he liked me, but he wouldn't kiss me. And I asked him about it later that night. I was like, dude, are you not into me? And he's like, I just didn't want our first kiss to be at a dance party. Aww. And I was like, and now, yeah, at the time, like, oh, so sweet, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, but at the but time. But at the time, I was like, ew, no, that's emotional. My heart's in a box. I can't give that to you. So, ew, like, let's make this, like, as unemotional as we can. Gross. So um, I just kind of tried to keep pushing that out of it and make it just about, like, kind of using each other, basically. 
and um, we we never ended up having sex, although I got to a point where I was willing to, and he was like, I don't think you're going to feel good about that if we do that. And he was the one who stopped it. And I was like, whatever, fine. Walking home with you that night Well, you walked and let me ride your bike Because my legs were tired from dancing Beside me on the swing the silence between us was deafening And I looked up to the stars for an answer and prayed What should I do? I so badly wanted to kiss you
still am very grateful that he had that self-restraint that I did not have um, that night. But there were other things that were certainly not chased. And in it, we, I remember one night or day, I don't know, whenever it was happening, (laughs) we were in the midst of things and God was speaking to me in my heart and was like, what you're doing isn't good for him. And I was like, shut up right now, God. I'm like almost there. (laughs) And I was like, I don't want to hear it. Um, But I, by the time uh, it was the summer before my senior year, we parted ways for the summer. Kind of, we were like in an open relationship or whatever, because that was the thing to do. You know, if you're being sensible, young adult, right? 20 something, you don't have commitments, right? It was dumb. But I remember just like, feeling simultaneously like I needed to be like flirty and sort of like unavailable emotionally and kind of like attractive, but I was jealous and insecure. And like, I wanted to kind of like be just getting attention from other guys, but I also didn't, you know, I just wanted this one guy and it was just, Oh, I was this mess. And Mm. I was like, who am I Mm. again? Not myself. Who have I become? Like who, what is going on here? And I, uh, had this, uh, I was waking up uh, one morning and kind of like lucid dreaming. And I imagined, I saw Jesus in this like lucid dream and he just stood there with his hands extended out in front of him and he was like, just holding them. He didn't say anything. And I knew he was asking me for my heart. And I was like, no, 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 I've got it in this box, you see, and I'm keeping it safe there. Like I need to guard it. If I take it out of the box, it's going to get stomped on. It's going to get hurt. No, thank you. And he just stood there just giving me that look, that that Jesus look. So I all kind of like Indiana Jones style, like took it out of my chest, all like bloody and beating, and like put it in his hands. And then I like woke up and I looked up at the wall in my room because I was staying in Portland that summer. And I had this banner on my wall that still hangs in my apartment. It says, love is a verb. Love is a doing word. It's from the lyrics of a massive attack song called Teardrop. And they just took on this whole new meaning for me. Like, love is a doing word. And I I went to confession that day, and I talked with the priest, and I just, you know, openly was like, yeah, I've been lustful. I've been not being true to me. I haven't been loving well. How do I love this guy well? How do I love people well? And the priest said, to love is to put someone's best interest before your own. And it was just so simple, but it was something that I decided I wanted to take into my like daily life and start to be intentional about looking out for how I'm caring for others in my actions, in my relationships, in my words. I wrote that guy a letter that I had been dating saying, you know, let's start from scratch. I have not been loving you well, you know, not like in love because obviously that would have freaked him out. I was like, I love you. Like we're not there yet, but tried to communicate that I just wanted to sort of purify and, and kind of have a clean slate. He thought, I think, that I was just like breaking up with him. And so he never wrote me back and was just like upset. I had to kind of let that go at the time. And then just the kind of leading into um, the beginning of my senior year, I was just at mass one night and um, became really overwhelmed with uh, God's love in this kind of mystical way. And it's hard to explain, but I just knew that God was in love with me and, um, and that I was so in love with God. 
and I'd never felt it so profoundly. It felt like this ecstasy, and yet I was crying. And it was, it just, it surpassed any like physical earthly pleasure I had ever had. And I'm like overheating, but like trembling. And all I could, I, all I was hearing and knowing in my heart, and it was the same mass I went to every Sunday. So it wasn't like this thing that happened all the time. And certainly it wasn't like in this charismatic environment where everyone's like slaying in the spirit and speaking in tongues. Like it's a contemplative mass where it's dark and candlelit and you can't really see anybody <laughs> else and you're having your own little experience. And I was just overcome with God's love for me and this reality that if he was real, if Jesus was real and he loves me and he wants the best for me and he knows everything because he's God, then I, everything in my life, if I trust him and I orient it around him, um, will ultimately be the most fulfilling. Like, this experience of God's love was like a little tiny preview of probably, I would say, what heaven is like because it just made everything that's earthly, that feels good on this earth, like nice, but doesn't quite compare. And so I was like, wow, well, like if this is, if this is your love, God, like, all right, I'll, whatever. I could be a sister. I could, you know, go off and do all these things and I would do whatever for you. And it was after that experience of just like a profound encounter with this real love that's uh, not conditional, that's not about performing, that's not about a false version of myself that I'm putting forward, that's not self-seeking, that's just me as I am. Um, if, that's, if that's who God is, like, I can just, I can do whatever. I can do whatever you want me to do. And so I, I decided to wait till marriage after that experience, like, my practice currently is to abstain from sex and and really but i think sometimes we when we talk about purity and chastity we get so caught up in like the particulars um and the specifics and the black and the white and i think for me what i realized about the practice of chastity is it really comes down to the intentionality of our hearts and one of my favorite worship songs is like kind of simple as it is, is um, amazing love. Like, mm. amazing love, how can it be that you're making would die for me? And the end of that refrain is, in all I do, I honor you. In all I do, I honor you. And I, again, part of my conversion that summer that was going on was like, am I really honoring him in all I do? And like reflecting on that in the littlest ways. When I'm like trying to flirt it up or like, you know, push my boobs together to have more cleavage and a low cut shirt to try to like attract some guy that I want to notice me. Am I really honoring God? And am I really loving that guy? Well, yeah, like those little things. Right. And it's hard because I think our society socializes women to sexualize and objectify ourselves. Our fashion dictates it, you know, well, that, um, in some ways that's kind of the one power we know we have. Sure. You know, like we can get a lot of stuff. We can manipulate Mm -hmm. by flirting or by dressing really seductively or whatever mm -hmm. and it's like you it's it's easy to go to that when you know like you can even though it's cheap and mm -hmm. it's like a really easy path like you know you can get more or less what you want sure sometimes and I, yeah and I think I think even more broadly and this is where like I don't know I'm a weird combination of like super like not super Catholic I mean I guess some people would say Jess you're so super Catholic but like <laughs> 
I mean, I'm practicing chastity, but I also super identify as a feminist. I think that, you know, rape culture, for example, and this idea of like, oh, well, she wore a shirt skirt, she asked for it, right? Yeah. Like, the victim blaming. I think, sure, there are situations where a person can use their sexuality to manipulate, but I think largely our culture socializes in it. It's much more insidious. Like, I think Mm. women have been socialized to present themselves a certain way. And I think especially because I work with teens, I think a lot of these teenage girls who are dressing themselves certain ways, they're not intentionally like, oh, I want to wear these shorts because so you can see just the bottom of my butt cheek because I really want that to to lure a guy. I think they're just getting dressed the way they think other all the other girls are dressing and yeah. they just want to be loved and they just want to be fitting in. And so I think that we don't even, I think we passively sometimes present ourselves in ways to look good and we don't necessarily consciously think about the effect that it may be having on how we're being perceived visually and how that affects the way that we're being perceived in general. It sucks that the way that we have to, because of the fact that women are always like from the time we're little, like you're pretty, you're beautiful. Our image is such a central idea of, or part of who we are, right? Like femininity is frequently associated with image. I think that we don't even, we're not even conscious of how those choices are um, affecting us. And it sucks that like we can be seen a certain way and treated a certain way just based on how we look and how we're presenting ourselves. And we may not even be as aware of the effect that that's having. And so then we're like, well, why would you treat me like that? I, um, I went to mass once when I was 14. I was developing young teenager, very leggy. I'm a tall, leggy person and lanky. And um, I was wearing shorts because it's Santa Monica and like close to the beach. And I was helping out as an usher doing collection. And I get to the back and there's this older woman, like didn't look like super well put together. Like she might've, she looked like she could have potentially been homeless. And I was thinking, she's like, uh, kind of, she's like beckoning me like with her finger, like to come closer. And I was like, oh, it's like the widow who put her last two cents or whatever in the collection. I thought she's like, wow, this is going to be an experience. And I went over to her with the basket she goes, you're going to go to hell dressing like that. And I was like, whoa, like totally wasn't expecting to get like slut shamed <laughs> at mass by this woman in the back, this, this poor older woman. And I was so traumatized and I, all I could think about the entire rest of mass was like, I'm going to go to hell because I wore shirts to mass and I'm, I'm probably some terrible slut, blah, blah, blah. At the end of mass, Father David comes out. I was like, Father David, am I, I going to go to hell because I wore shorts to mass? He's like, no, you're fine. <laughs> like, totally nipped it in the bud and was like, you're absolutely fine. You're don't worry. You're you're fine. But I mean, I think that for me what I re- what I think back on that like 14-year-old me wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm going to wear these shorts because I want to attract attention. Seduce someone. <laughs> I want to seduce someone or I want to attract attention to my butt and my legs. Like I was just wearing shorts cuz I'm a 14-year-old girl who's still like part kid, part like becoming adult but like I'm still part kid and I'm just running around in shorts and it's summertime and you know it's Santa Monica it feels good because it's a hot day it's such a hard balance like to take into account the effect that you might have on others because you can't really know that right you can't but also like making them be held accountable for their actions right absolutely absolutely I mean because that's the thing it's different per person. And I'm not going to wrap myself in like, you know, I mean, some people feel called to wrap themselves in a burqa. I do not feel called to cover my shoulders and my ankles and every part of my flesh because, you know, the sight of my like 
you know, left lower cheek on my face or like mid arm bicep, you know, might like turn some guy on and he won't be able to control himself. Like, I think that's a very permissive and problematic (laughs) slippery slope that leads to the justification for sexual abuse and assault and like, well, they were asking for it and that kind of mentality. So I'm very... Ooh, yeah. be careful, like, when we put any, when we shift that blame onto the way a woman presents herself, because there's really no way to completely prevent it, because right. really what it comes down to is if we are being seen so much as other, like, ooh, woman, she potentially has vagina and boobs, uh, then we become this object of sexual gratification. So it doesn't matter how we're presenting the package, right. when we are seen first as a package versus a person it's going to allow in someone's mind for them to project whatever fantasies or whatever actions they want onto us and whether they act on them. Kind of is like what Jesus said about uh, you commit adultery in your heart when you look upon a woman, right? If you look upon her with lust. And again, I mean, it's in the simplest things. Like it's really a matter of what's the disposition of your heart. Yeah. Because when the near occasion comes up, that'll really dictate your actions if your heart isn't which just happened for everyone it's not just absolutely you know absolutely we can't we can't just say like Mm -hmm. it's only guys that have less in their hearts clearly based on what i have just shared (laughs) it is clearly not only guys and frequently in my experience it was almost like i was the the lustful one and i was like if you love me you'll blah 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 and like guys actually frequently being the arbiters of better (laughs) discipline and self-mastery. So I don't know. I I tend to sort of question those generalizations like guys are this way, girls are this way. I'm like, not in my experience. Um, But I mean, maybe it's because of the kind of woman that I imagine. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Yeah. This has been amazing. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I have a band called Feronia and I released a record in 2014. It's an EP, short album. Um, and there are four songs on it. So feroniamusic.com or feronia, iTunes, Spotify. And the EP is called Words Like Rainfall. So you can find it anywhere. Just Google feronia, F-E-R-O-N-I-A. It's Italian. Just to kind of sum up some of these deeper, very personal things that I've shared. I think God's mercy has, and like in this year of mercy, I just want to emphasize how his mercy is so ubiquitous and that it's really been a part of my journey in falling more in love with him, with Jesus, and with, you know, being able to come to a place of um, really knowing myself and feeling at home in myself and feeling... Because you're still living in the world, right? Like you said you had that mystical experience with God and you could be a sister, but... Yeah. But that's not where you're at right now. No, I feel pretty much like I've discerned that I do feel called to married life. And I, and I, I think one of the hardest parts of that, cause I, again, like because of the way I grew up independence and whatnot, I struggled with like, oh, I don't need a man. Right. So a lot of women like fantasize about like the husband and the kids and the house and all that. And I almost, I get adverse to it because I feel like I don't want to desire something so much that I might never have. And so I think allowing myself to trust in God and like he keeps inviting me to a deeper patience and a deeper trust. That's really been a part of just like my 
deepening my relationship with with God. And and I think that that's part of my vocation is that trust that I can grow in that and and continue to um, die to myself. And I kind of envision that probably the best way for me as an individual to die to myself will be in marriage. <laughs> I think that that will be probably the best way for me to do that. Sometimes when we talk about purity and chastity and we make it all one-sided and like, oh, so-and-so's got to protect so-and-so's purity and whatever. And oh, if you've made these mistakes, like, I think there's this idea. I don't know why I just went into a Southern drama. That was Maybe really that's hilarious. kind of pr- problematic that I assume that people who uh, <laughs> are from Southern regions have certain beliefs about <laughs> gender and sexuality and purity. Maybe they do. Maybe I'm making some generalizations myself. Tisk tisk, just mercy. I think that we sometimes, there's a lot of shame and guilt or ideas that like if you've had certain experiences or made certain choices that, um, you know, you're like tainted. Ruined. Yeah, ruined and whatever, soiled. And um, for both men and women, that's so not the case that I really think when we talk about purity, purity is not defined by what you have done in your past it's really the where is your heart at at this particular moment in time like what is the orientation of your heart is your heart pure are your intentions pure are you continually striving to be the best you you can be and to love in the best way possible in the most pure way possible to give of yourself purely and authentically that is what purity is. So I feel like I could say I'm pure, like I would wear a purity ring with no shame because I am striving to live that way. I don't wear a purity ring because I I think it's more associated with sort of problematic uh, associations and gender stuff that I'm like, ugh, no. Like I just, I wish we could get away from purity culture without all the sexist baggage. But um, when we can just bring it back to men and women, people, being people, loving each other well, and looking at each other as beloved children of God um, and seeing each other through God's eyes before we allow the world's kind of lenses to come over our eyes and like blur the way that we look at each other and objectify each other. I think that's what purity culture needs to focus on more and what I try to focus on in my life. And God's mercy kind of helps me to do that because I'm always struggling with these things. I'm never like, oh, I'm so pure and holy and I never have like any sexual desire. And like, I never get tempted. Well, thank you so much um, for sharing your story. I think you have a really powerful testimony and I really love how you articulate your journey and your choices and um, how chastity and purity can be totally compatible with feminism and not rooted in fear. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It just comes down to trust. And I think the catechism really says beautiful things about chastity. It's like all of, it's a virtue and we grow in self mastery and it's not a like perfect process where you're like, Oh, you've reached it. Like it's a lifelong process. And so even the language there is very gentle, very merciful language about just constantly being able to let go of our attachment to self. And that's, that's the Paschal mystery essentially. So So in the spirit of having a testimony, 
about an encounter with the risen Lord. I asked Jess what one of her favorite passages is, and she gave me this passage of John chapter 20, 11 through 18. And I think it really speaks to coming to Jesus with your sadness and your shame and being comforted by him. But Mary stayed outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she bent over into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken my Lord, and I don't know where they laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus there, but did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? She thought it was the gardener and said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you laid him, and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am going to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary of Magdala went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and what he told her. As always, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. This has been episode six of Fishers of Men, a podcast about relationships and your walk with Jesus. Today you heard from singer-songwriter Jessica Gerhardt. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at fishersofmenpodcast at gmail.com or on our website at www.fishersofmenpodcast.com. We're also on Facebook under Fishers of Men and on Twitter as at LA Gone Fishing. We'd also love to hear about your real-life dating moments. Feel free to send us a two-minute story about your experience. Also, if you have enjoyed our podcast, please make sure to go to iTunes and review and rate it. It's still We're still in the critical time where it's important to let iTunes know uh, that we are valued <laughs> so that they can, in turn, value us. And we really appreciate everyone who has given us such wonderful feedback so far. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. Until next time, keep swimming.